bearing the Ark of the Covenant, and I always thought if, if ever it turned up and was found, I wouldn't want to touch it. There's no such thing about Noah's Ark. If we find it, we could carry it home. I just don't know how many people it would take. Well, next weekend is a social plan. It's to be a 50s theme and setting. We'll start with our meal at 6.30 p.m. There'll be no potluck next weekend. We'll start the meal. It'll still be Sabbath because daylight savings time goes on this week. So we'll go ahead and eat our meal at 6.30 instead of at 2 o'clock like we normally do. And then the activities will start at 7.45 the after sundown. Where did the winter go? 7.45 sundown suddenly. That means we all have to work later every day, right? So I'm looking forward to that. I received an email from Kenya a couple of days ago. It's, uh, it was a more interesting one than normal. Usually it seems people get on the Internet and find us one way or another, and most of them are Protestant in background, and they say they were interested in working with us and uh, that they believe everything we say. And about then when I say, sure you do. Uh, they don't say much, but then the second memo, uh, after I write them back, it's, would you please send us a cassette player and a car battery and you know various things they ask for that they need over there. But this one was different. It says, we're from a worldwide Church of God background. Please send for information about the Passover and the articles on I Love Government. Um, 144,000 guests at the wedding and so on and so forth. So they've evidently been reading on our website. They do have difficulties over there because Internet service is very spendy, and most of them have to rent time. They don't have computers. So they wanted the printed material, which we'll be happy to send. So they want to work with us. So apparently they've done some reading to find those articles and desire them. There's about 32 people in the group. Uh, So they're an independent former Church of God group. So that's more encouraging than what I normally get, and I hope you'll pray about that one and ask for God's guidance there and how we deal with them. And perhaps they're beginning to realize that everything wasn't just right and worldwide, and they're looking at some other things. Well, last time I spoke, we went through Ezekiel 17, which as a parable and a riddle seems to me to be speaking very clearly of Worldwide Church of God, its beginnings, its history, and then its end through the Dakash group. Toward the end of that chapter, it talks about what God is going to do now that the scattering has occurred and how he'll take of the highest branch of the high cedar and will set it. In verse 22, I will crop off from the top of his young twigs a tender one and we'll plant it upon a high mountain and dim it in. So God is going to start with something very small, a twig, and he is going to set it in a very imminent place where it cannot be denied. 
cannot help but be seen. The church today is struggling for recognition overall. I mean, the, the entire church struggling to be seen and heard, but not many people are listening. However, God is going to put forth something that will have to shine to the world, that will have to be seen. They won't agree with it, but they can't deny it, because God will set it up in such a place. It says, He'll set it in the mountain of the height of Israel. It will bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be a goodly cedar. Now, doesn't Haggai say that the latter temple will outshine by far in glory that which came before the former temple, which we knew as Worldwide Church of God? And under it shall dwell all fowl of every wing. So peoples from all over the world, all different kinds of birds, uh, will be there. And the shadow of the branches shall they dwell. So God is going to provide something that will provide shelter and help and everything that is needed in this latter temple that will be built shortly. All the trees of the field, all the people, all the churches will know that I, the eternal, have brought down the high tree, have exalted the low tree, have dried up the green tree, and have made the dry tree to flourish. So God is going to take something that apparently is at this point dead, that which seemed to flourish has gone away, dried up. God's going to take something small and make something of it and cause it to flourish and bring forth good fruit. I, the eternal, have spoken it and have done it. It's as good as done. Once he says it will be done, then he speaks of those things that are not as if they already were. So in his mind, it's a done deal. What we have talked about in Haggai, Zechariah, and all through the Bible, and especially the prophecies, is going to happen. So God gives us a brief history here through Ezekiel. He tells us how it's going to turn out. And chapter 18, then, is very interesting because even though God says, I am going to do this, he narrows it down now to our individual responsibility. Just being part of the group will not be enough. Being part of any church group right now is not enough. Even being a part of what God is going to do in the latter temple, being there, being a part of it, will not necessarily be enough. So it is interesting that God, after saying what he is going to do, then gives us an in-step chapter, chapter 18, to explain. The word of the eternal came to me again, saying, okay, here's another message from Ezekiel, something we all need to take heed to. What mean you that you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Let me go back to Jeremiah 31 just a moment. Jeremiah 31. I think that's the one I want. In verse 29. In those days they shall say no more, the fathers have eaten a sour grape, and the children's teeth are set on edge. So this is a proverb apparently that was used more than once through the history of Israel. You know, usually when you bite down on something sour, it's your teeth that are set on edge. 
But remember in the Ten Commandments it talked about how God would visit the iniquities upon the third and fourth generation of those that hate him and won't obey him. So it was a national thing that if a generation did not obey God and broke his laws, that the effects of that would last to the third and fourth generation. We are in a cycle in this nation, for instance, right now, which is still under the terms of the Old Covenant, in which through divorce and sin and disease, the effects of broken marriages and a broken society do trickle down several generations. They are felt by those who are the children and the grandchildren of families that are dysfunctional for whatever reason or another or that break up. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man that eats the sour grape, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, the days come, says the Eternal, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And right now, the church of God is the only place the new covenant has been offered. So this brings us front and center to the present day. A new covenant will be offered to Everyone, after Christ returns, that has only been offered to a few now. Many are called in this age, and only a few are chosen. So back in Ezekiel 18, it says that this proverb that we just read in Jeremiah will not be a proverb anymore. Then he explains what he means. As I live, says the eternal God. So in essence, he is swearing on his very life. His own eternity. What more could you stake this on than that? The very fact that he is God and the eternal being. This is a promise that he will die if he does not complete it. God does not, cannot sin. He limits himself from sinning will not allow himself to go there in any form or fashion. And that's why he is still alive. As I live, says the eternal God, you shall not have occasion anymore to use this proverb in Israel. Things are not going to be the way they have been. There's going to be a change. Behold, verse 4, all souls are mine. He's offering a new covenant, as Jeremiah 31 says, and all souls are his. We all belong to him. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. So he's not going to delineate a family anymore, but each and every individual. This is a very, very personal chapter. The soul that sins, it shall die. The individual, and we heard in the sermonette about Korah and all those people who died with him, those of a similar attitude. We heard about various others who were taken away. And in the Old Testament, whole families were wiped out. Women, children, animals, everything that would remind of that, in that family were gone, sometimes because of the sin of one. It's not going to be that way anymore. Verse 5. This is a very encouraging chapter in many respects. 
you don't have to answer for Korah's sin. You're his child or his wife. We'll see that very clearly. If a man be just and does that which is lawful and right and has not eaten upon the mountains, that is, gone to other governments, other ways, idolatry, they tended to put their high places, their idolatrous worship, in high areas, elevated areas of the terrain. Neither has lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel. Israel today, physical Israel, and I don't speak of the Middle East, I mean Israel right here at home, is full of idols. Is this a godly nation? No, it is not. Well, what separates this nation then from God? Sin is what separates us from God, and idolatry is the first and biggest sin. Because every other sin we commit has to do with putting ourselves ahead of God. So any sin is idolatry. So look at the things in our culture that cause a gap between us and God. And you can look at almost anything in our culture. And it's something that in one way or another draws us away from and puts us at odds to God. Almost everything in it. So God is looking for individuals who will not go that way. They'll get rid of their idols. They'll get rid of the culture, the society, the ways that are keeping our nation away from God. And the things that kept the church of God away from God and caused it to be a low-spreading vine without good fruit instead of a stately cedar that provided shelter, proper shelter, for all peoples. So he puts away the idols that the house of Israel does not imbibe of this society and culture. Neither has defiled his neighbor's wife, and that is something that is very common in our society today. Neither has come near to a menstruous woman, which was a sign of uncleanness in that day. And has not oppressed any, but has restored to the debtor his pledge, has spoiled none by violence, has given his bread to the hungry, and has covered the naked with a garment. So it covers proper social conduct. Herbert Armstrong tried over and over to tell us there's a way of give and a way of get. And that really more or less sums up what Ezekiel is saying here. That we have responsibilities one to another. No man is an island. We don't live by ourselves. We're not here just to take care of ourselves and what we want. But we're here to present our bodies, our minds, our emotions, our feelings, our activities as living sacrifices to give to others, to help others. What do we have today? We have a narcissistic, selfish society, which is me first, you second. I get mine, you get what's left. That's basically our whole approach. It's the get way. God is saying here, his society has to be ordered differently. We have to learn to do the things that he has said, he's saying here, and not to oppress anyone, but to be sure everyone, our neighbors, Everyone around us has what they need. Verse 8, He that is not given forth upon usury, 
not misusing the poor by charging interest. We have a nation today that has, through greed, extended mortgages to people who could not afford the mortgage in the first place, and in the fine print, which they do not always explain to people, their interest rates would go up after a year or two or three or four, and then they would go up some more, and people who could barely make a mortgage payment suddenly see their payments go up three, four, five, six, seven, eight hundred dollars a month, and they simply can't do it. So we are in a cycle right now where the housing market is falling apart. Those lenders who were so greedy are going broke because people cannot make the payments. That is an oppressive society. God says we're to take care of those who are needy, who are poor, who for whatever reason, education or ability or whatever, can't seem to, physical problems can't seem to take care of themselves. We need to be sure. They are taken care of, that we give and help. And what our general overall attitude, not just looking for somebody poor to help, but our general overall attitude is one of service and giving and helping, no matter who it is. We're a living sacrifice for everyone. God so loved the whole world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He's offered it to you and me now. He's going to offer that to everyone later. But we have to come to live God's way, and it is an individual responsibility. This is all about the individual here. Neither has taken any increase that has withdrawn his hand from iniquity, whatever iniquities, whatever weaknesses, whatever problems, whatever sins we have. God says we have to individually get over them. Just being in a group, no matter what part of the church of God it might be, does not solve your individual personal problems, does it? Being right here in this group, as by and of itself, does not solve any of your problems. Now, maybe we can teach and preach the things that will help you and lead you to God and lead you to change and repent by reminding but really, it comes down to individual effort, doesn't it? It is so easy to sit here and not get what's being said, as was brought out in the sermon ad, or <laughs> hear it and forget it, or hear it and agree with it and say, yeah, that sure is talking about me, and then walking out and forgetting it. There are so many ways. And sometimes we simply deceive ourselves as to what reality is. <clears throat> he executes true judgment between man and man. Doesn't play favorites, but see, which is true and right and fair for everyone involved. Further things that we must do. Has walked in my statutes, has kept my judgments, to deal truly. He is just. He shall surely live, says the eternal God. So we can take those few verses, and it says if a man is just and lawful and does these things that are written right here, he's going to live and have opportunity. Now, this was written at a time when eternal life had not been offered. 
except to a few like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David, and a few others we can name. Certainly not generally to all of Israel. And it's a big future prophecy for today. So I believe he's not talking here about just physical life, but he's talking about eternal life. He shall surely live, says the eternal God. Verse 10, if he beget a son that is a robber, a murderer, and that does the like to any one of these things, and that does not any of those duties, that even has eaten upon the mountains and defiled his neighbor's wife, has oppressed the poor and needy, is spoiled by violence, has not restored the pledge, doesn't keep his word, has lifted up his eyes to the idols, has committed abomination, has given forth upon usury, and has taken increase, taken advantage of others. Shall he then live? He shall not live. He has done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him. doesn't matter what the Father has done. The Father will be judged by what he has done, and the Son will be judged by what he has done. You can't lean on your parents. You'll be accountable for yourself and yourself alone. You can't say, well, I was in the right group, Lord. Won't cut any ice with him. He'll say, yeah, okay. Bully for you, but what did you do yourself? This is an individual deal. Judgment is an individual proposition. Verse 14. Now, if he beget a son that sees all his father's sins, which he has done and considers, and does not such like. He might have a father who's a real rat, and doesn't do anything right. But God says, now if that father, who is sinful, has a son, he's addressing a different category here. And he doesn't, he considers it, he thinks about it, doesn't do the things his father did. See, you can't blame your parents for your problems. A lot of people try to do that. Well, it's all my parents' fault. They didn't know how to raise me. They didn't do it right. Blah, 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 blah. Whine, whine, cry. Doesn't make any difference to God. He's laying it out here for us. You will answer for yourself and for no one else. And your parents can't answer for you. And you can't answer for them. God's going to do a great work. He is going to make his people known around the world. And they will stand against the beast and the false prophet and everything that is about to happen. But they have to stand on their own two feet. They can't blame their parents for their lacks. Nor for their success. And the parent can't claim their children's success for their own lacks. It just doesn't happen that way. If he get a son that sees all his father's sins which he has done and considers and does not such like, you are responsible for yourself. When somebody starts whining and crying about how they were raised, I have no sympathy. you got to fix it. That's what this is all about. you just got to fix it. 
God's not going to say, oh, yeah, okay, I'll have sympathy. I, I realize you weren't raised right. And then just give you life because you weren't raised right, but you haven't done what's right? Does that seem fair? No. I think he's laying it out very beautifully here. But each of us has his own responsibility. So one that considers and doesn't do like his parents have done or his father Verse 15, that is not eaten upon the mountains, neither is lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel. He eschews the society and culture around him. Doesn't go that way. Individual responsibility. You know, our parents could try to tell us what was right. And some of our parents are trying to tell us right now what is right and what is wrong. Sometimes we listen. Sometimes we rebel. Sometimes we don't want to hear it. But be it known, God will hold you accountable. The relationship has to do with you and God individually, whether you be a young person or older. Proverbs says even a child is known by his ways, his attitude, his approach, and so on. Some respect is kind of natural to rebel against a parent, isn't it? And in some, because God made it so the parent and child eventually would separate. And that's his intent. He told Adam and Eve, you're supposed to marry and live with your mate, and a young man should leave his father and mother and dwell with his wife. You don't live with mama until you're 50 years old, and mama's supposed to turn loose and papa and let you go live your own life. So there is a natural separation. Parents can cling and children can run and you can make it as miserable and unhealthy and unhappy as you so choose on both sides. Or you can recognize that this is a natural thing that God has created and that each individual has to ultimately ultimately answer for himself. Meanwhile, parents are there to guide, to lead, to direct, to teach, to help you learn to be an upstanding, godly person. And since you, by nature, aren't like that, and your parents, by nature, are not like that, your parents are being converted, and hopefully you ultimately will be too, so that you can live, both physically, perhaps in the millennium, and ultimately spiritually. Your parents aren't perfect. They make mistakes. They're trying to learn. They still make mistakes. They're trying to become totally converted, changed from what they were. Now, you can go the way of the society and culture if you so desire. You can rebel against parents. You can pull away. Or you can recognize that they're trying to teach you a way that will lead to happiness and peace in the long run, not perhaps fulfill all the desires of the place that you might have at the moment. They're trying to lead you in a way that will be upright and upstanding and make a good citizen out of you, both for the society and for God. They're not against you, even though it seems like it at times. They're against 
the baser, natural, normal, selfish desires of human nature, which we all have to fight and face. You young people are not the only ones fighting the battle. Each and every one of us, no matter how old we are, is still fighting the battle not to be selfish, to give, to love, to help, to nourish, to strengthen, and simply to obey with God's way of life. It isn't natural for any of us. And certainly the whole world is going the other direction. <clears throat> Stand up for what's right. Stand up to be the right kind of citizen instead of being like this world. So he says that the sun doesn't eat upon the mountains, hasn't followed the idols of this society, has not defiled his neighbor's wife, neither has oppressed any, has not withheld the pledge, his word is good, he writes a check, signs it, it's right, it won't bounce. A true Christian will never bounce a check. Maybe they're poor at math, they might, poor at management, but should never happen. Because if you sign your name to it, that's what you're doing. You're saying, this is good. If it's not good, you're not good. God says, don't be that way. Neither is spoiled by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry and has covered the naked with a garment. That has taken off his hand from the poor. Doesn't keep them the scruff of the neck, in other words. That has not received usury nor increase, has executed my judgments, has walked in my statutes. He shall not die for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. Doesn't matter your background. If you do it right, God says you will live. No matter what your parents have been. Verse 18. <clears throat> As for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, spoiled his brother by violence, and did that which is not good among the, his people, lo, even he shall die in his iniquity. Does that, is that clear? Does that make sense? Is that fair? That each person will answer for himself, young or old, father or son, doesn't matter. I think it's quite interesting that God sandwiched this right in here, right after saying, I am going to do a mighty work at the end time, then he brings it right back to us and says, here's what you need to do if you're going to live. Here's what will happen if you don't do what I say. I think we should be able to stop right there, shouldn't we? And say, hey, there it is. We all answer to God one way or another. We'll live or die. Well, that's not quite the end of the story. Verse 19. Yet say you, Why? Does not the Son bear the iniquity of the Father? When the Son has done that which is lawful and right, and has kept all my statutes, and has done them, he shall surely live. We tend to think that God is unfair. And yet God is laying out a very fair scenario here. We sometimes try to blame our parents. And if we go down, we're going to take our parents with us. We're bound and determined to do that. It's not my fault, it's their fault. The soul that sins, it shall die. 
The Son shall not bear the iniquity of the Father, neither shall the Father bear the iniquity of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. I don't know how you could get it any fairer than that. And yet many people will say God is not fair, and I'll blame him. Because of where they were born, how they were born, how they were raised, what they had, silver spoon or no spoon, or whatever, they'll try to blame someone else. And God says, no, 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 that won't work. You will answer for yourself. <clears throat> but, what if you've been wicked? Verse 21, But if the wicked will turn from all his sins that he has committed, and keep all my statutes, and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Now that's about as encouraging, I think, as it can get. Because we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, and our righteousness is like a pile of filthy rags before him. And yet, forgiveness is offered. Now, God would do that on a physical level for people. He would not cause them to be stoned or die in a plague or whatever, physically, if they would keep his statutes and judgments. But he's offered us through our Savior. And his righteousness, an opportunity for all our sins to be forgiven, that we might live eternally. And it doesn't matter what our sins have been. Let's go on and read that. All his transgression that he has committed, they shall not be mentioned to him. In his righteousness that he has done, he shall live. It doesn't matter how black we've been. It doesn't matter how High to heaven our sins have reached. Murderers, adulterers, thieves, liars, idolaters. It doesn't matter. God says he'll forgive it. I met a man once who said he was the wickedest man that had ever lived. He built it up and built it up and told us that he had murdered it. And I think he intended to scare me by that, because he said, would you like some apple juice? I think I've told you that story. We said, yeah, I think we'll have some apple juice. I don't know to this day whether it was poisoned or not, but it didn't kill us. <laughs> God says you drink a poison thing, it won't kill you. Now, I would, if I'd known it was poison, I certainly wouldn't have drank it, but how was I to know? After the big build-up he had made for 30 minutes about how bad a sinner he was. It doesn't matter. I'm not impressed by sin. God is not impressed by sin. And I don't care how bad a sinner you claim you've been. And I've met people over the years who would want to go back and recount their sins so that they could impress you with how bad they had been. God says, your sin will not even be mentioned to you if you repent and change. There are a lot of people, I think, that would be disappointed in that. But Lord, wait a minute. I wanted to tell you how bad I was. Perhaps they're proud of their sin. I don't know. How bad they were. How much worse than anyone else they have in their mind decided they were. 
God bless you. No, don't even tell me. Don't even want to hear your sin, if you want to tell me. But someone who truly recognizes what sin is and how it is against God's way and leads to unhappiness and misery, really, wouldn't want their sins mentioned. Wouldn't want to brag about them. Wouldn't want to tell about them. Wouldn't want them hid. There is a scripture that says they'll be removed as far as the east is from the west. Not ever mentioned to you again if you repent. I think even in the church, sometimes we still have the old Protestant idea that we're all going to go up and sit before the throne of God and we'll have a session with him. Not the way it's going to be with us. Not the way it's going to be at all. It says, when he returns, the seventh trump, you'll either be changed at the moment in the twinkling of an eye, or you'll remain on the earth. <clears throat> One of the two. So if you've already been made a spirit being, and you're going to live forever with God, the decision's already made. You don't come and sit before Him and, you know, go cheap, go cheap, kind of a deal. That separation is made when that trumpet sounds. Now, yes, when Christ is here on this earth, He's going to be setting the sheep on one hand and the goats on the other. How? Through judging the way people live. Now, judgment is now upon you and me. God is pondering your heart and mine. He is determining right now, today, whether you and I will be in his kingdom. And day by day, I don't mean only today, but day by day as we live, he's seeing if we're taking care of the poor, if we're cheating people, if we're lying, if we're doing all these things that are mentioned here in this chapter. The decision will already be made when that trumpet sounds. You'll either be there or you won't be there. We go before God, and right now we are being separated as sheep and goats. In the millennium, people will live, it appears, a hundred years, and they will be judged on a hundred-year lifetime, according to Isaiah 65. We're being judged on 20, 30, 40, 50 years here, 60, whatever, of our lifetime of conversion. Or as children, God has got to make a decision on you young people. You may not be converted now. You may not be being called now. And your parents can't save you. Now, if you're an obedient child and your parent is converted, I think the principle is laid in 1 Corinthians 7, that you're sanctified by your parents' obedience or set aside for a special purpose, and that would be to live on into the millennium as leaders there in a time of peace, safety, happiness. Your children, you won't have to worry about. They won't be abducted by idiots and fools and perverts. You won't have to worry about locking anything because there will be no locks. No one will steal. If anyone does start to do anything wrong, one of us, We'll say, uh, don't go that way. We're going to live this way. We're going to be happy now. Everybody have a good day. That's the way it will be. You think we can read your minds now? Hang on a while. Read every thought. 
that it will be a blessed time. Now, if you're obedient, maybe God will say, okay, you'll live on in the millennium. If not, maybe he'll say, no, I think you need to die in the tribulation. Maybe he'll bring you up in the second resurrection and have a chance then. But the reward isn't as great. It's less and less each time. So which round do you want to come up in? Or which round do you want to live in? I, I find it very comforting that our sins will never be mentioned to us again. What are you, whatever you and I have done in the past, God will not mention. Of course, now we'll talk about each other up until then, won't we? We'll try to figure out who's been bad and who's been good, won't we? No, that's not what loving is about. When people want to count the sins of Herbert Armstrong or anybody else, for that matter, they got the wrong attitude. God says, I, I'll never say. Whatever you did, I saw it all. He'll forget it. He'll never say it to you again. I find that very comforting. In his righteousness that he has done, he shall live. He repents and changes. Verse 23, have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? Now, God has shown in many, many scriptures that he is going to allow to die or kill 90% of the human beings that are on this earth in order to get their attention so that they'll know he's God when they come up for resurrection and so that he can start fresh. And it'll take that much to get people's attention. Does he take pleasure in that? Is he an angry God that just wants to kill? No, he loves the whole world. He sent his son that there might be a way made that they could ultimately live and live forever. So he's not happy to see the wicked die. He doesn't take any kind of bizarre, strange pleasure in that. Do I have any pleasure in that, says the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live? His whole attitude is, I just assume you change. Don't be the way you are. Be different. Change your attitude. And live. But when the righteous turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? All his righteousness that he has done shall not be mentioned. I guess it's fair both ways, isn't it? If you've been righteous and then you turn to wickedness, God says, I won't remember your righteousness any more than I remember your wickedness if you turn from wickedness. God is simply going to base his judgment on what we do, good or bad. And he gives opportunity to change. In his trespass that he has trespassed, and in his sin that he has sinned, in them shall he die. Yet people still say, the way of the eternal is not equal. God isn't fair. I have some questions. People will say, what about this? Why did God let little Johnny die? On and on it goes. They haven't read Ezekiel 18, I guess. Hear now, O house of Israel, is not my way equal? Are, your, are not your ways unequal? God's saying, look, I'm going to be fair about this whole thing. 
You'll change, you can live. If been bad, you can be good, you'll live. If you're good and you turn to bad, you die. Sounds fair to him. But aren't, isn't it our judgments that sometimes are skewed? Verse 26, when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and dies in them, for his iniquity that he has done, shall he die. Again, when the wicked man turns away from his wickedness that he has committed and does that which is lawful and right, he shall save his soul alive. Because he considers and turns away from all his transgressions that he has committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Now God is staking his very eternal life on this. This whole chapter, remember we read it at the beginning? As I live, says the eternal. This is the way I make my judgments. This is the way it's going to be. There are people who don't have faith in the sacrifice of Christ. They cling to their sins. They carry their guilt about with them. No, it doesn't matter what you've done. If you repent of it and you change, you don't do that anymore, and you obey God, he says, I won't mention your sin to you ever again or remove it as far as the east and the west. Why are you dragging it around behind you? Why are you letting it affect you? I think some of it is that we believe in the Roman Catholic doctrines and of the Protestants, in some cases, of penance. I have to carry around the guilt, and I have to feel so bad about the way I've been, what I've done. I have to feel bad and guilty all my life. No, you don't. It doesn't make any difference what you've done or how much of it. I think you're breaking God's law by carrying that guilt around. Now, he tells us not to gossip and backbite and talk about the sins of others. Well, in that case, why should we talk about our own sins? If we're to forget the sins of others, shouldn't we forget our own? God says he does. What kind of complex is it we as human beings have that we feel, well, I've got to suffer from my sins. I have to bear this guilt all my life. No, you don't. God's telling us that right here. If you turn from your sins, you will save your soul alive. Well, if God promises you that you're saving your soul from by changing, why wallow in your past? There's no point. There's no purpose. There's no gain. Why not just unhitch it and walk away? Did you believe it? When you were baptized, did you really believe your sin would be washed away in the blood of Emmanuel? But God is with you now. If you believed it, live it. If you believed it, unhitch the trailer and walk away from your sin. Why are you still carrying it if it's covered by the blood of Christ? And don't give people much room when they want to bring up either your past or theirs. 
once you're baptized, you're made clean by the blood of the Lamb. Believe it. Passover is coming up soon to commemorate what he did for us. Are you going to take that Passover in faith or in doubt? Now, your current weaknesses and problems you're supposed to be overcoming. And we all still have them. We're not supposed to sit at Passover and think about all the things we did wrong 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. We're not supposed to do that. You might sit and examine yourself and say, here's where I still lack and what I need to do about it. But Passover time is not a time to sit there and review in your mind all the things you have done in the past. They're forgiven. They're washed away. Was it a year ago, two years ago, three years ago? Forget it. It doesn't exist anymore, except in your mind. That's what faith is. Walking, knowing that God's word is true. If you repented, that sin is no longer there. Your current weaknesses still are, and you need to examine yourself as to what you are today and what you still need to change and how you need the blood of your Savior as a result. Make your mind up now to examine yourself for what you are, not for what you have been when Passover comes. Verse 28, because he considers and turns away from all his transgressions that he has committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Says it two verses in a row there. That's for emphasis. Let's get it. Let's hear it. Let's understand it. Verse 29, yet says the house of Israel, the way of the eternal is not equal. Well, they just don't know God. If they don't think he's fair, they don't know him. He's as fair as you can get. And he bent over backward by sending his son so that even if you had sinned, you could be forgiven and get eternal life. How fair can you get? God is a lot fairer than we are. Sometimes we choose to repent people's sins. And in a heated moment, will we count them all from however far back, won't we? No, it's not the way God is. But people think God is not equal or fair. O house of Israel, are not my ways equal? Equal? Are not your ways unequal? Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the eternal God. It is an individual matter. It doesn't matter. We can be in the latter temple. But Ezekiel talks about God even from there purging the rebels from among us. When it comes time to go to a place of safety, even those who dwell in the villages of Jerusalem that shall be built here at the end time, a final separation is made of those who go and those who do not. God will separate it out. So even being a part of the latter temple doesn't ensure anything. It's your relationship with God that counts. That's what it's all about. Everyone, according to his ways, says the eternal God. 
Repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. Even though we've been called, sin can kill us and ruin us if we don't repent and change. Cast away from you all your transgressions, whereby you have transgressed. Make you a new heart and a new spirit. God says you can change your attitude. It can be done. It's not easy, but it can be done. Now, you can blame your father and your mother. God says in this chapter you can't do that. You've got to change your own attitude. You can have a new heart. You can have a new spirit, new attitude, new approach. We can change. Doesn't he tell us that we're to be transformed? Not go on like we've been, but be renewed and transformed by the Spirit of God. Now, you can't create a new heart and a new spirit yourself. Even people in the world, though, can change their attitudes about certain things. But to have the heart of God and the mind and the spirit of God is the key to real change. So it's not a surface thing, but from the heart. Repent and make you a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? You don't have to. You can live. For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dies, says the eternal God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live. 